This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine, prepared by Icon Mount Sinai, in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research-Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 8th, 2021. I'm Sarah Kresge. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up this week is contributing correspondent Josh Sokol. He discusses plans for launching tens of thousands of small satellites into low Earth orbit and how these mega constellations have opened a new frontier for environmental debate. After that, we have researcher Arthur Cochet. We talk about what can be learned about the history of people by looking at the genetic history of the hepatitis B virus over 10,000 years. Back in 2019, a SpaceX rocket released 60 small satellites into low Earth orbit, and a new field of environmental debate opened up, mega constellations. Josh Sokol is a contributing correspondent for news. He's here to talk about his feature story on the conflicts that have arisen, along with plans for swarms of more and more satellites. Hi, Josh. Hi. How many are there now? How many of these swarms are there now? And what do the plans look like for more? So right now, my understanding is there are 2,000 satellites that have been launched just in the past two years. That's low Earth. So there's geostationary ones. There's ones that are pretty far up, but these are kind of at the floor of space. That's right. And then what about in the next, say, 10 years? What's in the works for these swarms of satellites? There are very large plans that have been filed with radio regulators, which kind of are the gatekeepers for space. And these plans, if you total them up, there are different estimates, but I've heard 100,000, 120,000 that could launch over the next decade and, and a little bit more. So 100,000 is just, it's almost incomprehensible. When we look at the sky right now, we see stars. But if there's 100,000 satellites, we're going to see a satellite in every direction that we look. Potentially, yeah. It becomes a complicated orbital physics problem. You have all these satellites. They have different heights above the Earth. You have to think about when they're in the Earth's shadow because when they're not in the shadow, if they're illuminated by the sun, they can then reflect light down towards anyone standing in darkness underneath them. What are these for? Satellites for a long time have been used to provide internet connections. 
typically the way companies have done that is really expensive, nice satellites, and they'll put them at geostationary orbit, which is far away from Earth. And each satellite will look down on a huge swath of ground and will broadcast to and from that. Right now, though, complex electronics are cheaper, space launches are cheaper, and a lot of companies have settled on the same plan, which is make a lot more satellites, make them individually cheaper, and put them low over the Earth. So you'll need more satellites to cover the ground, but the distance between the satellites and the ground is a lot shorter. So the time that it takes for signals to travel up is, is much reduced. And you don't have noticeable lag times if you're doing activities that require really fast response, like competitive video games, maybe a telehealth conference where you would really want to be going back and forth quickly. Okay, so on to the debate. There are a number of issues here. Let's take them one at a time. The story you wrote opens with the brightness of these satellites, especially the first set, the Starlink satellites from SpaceX that went up in 2019. How bright they were really surprised a lot of people. They were very bright, like first or second magnitude is how astronomers would say it. And you could compare that to some of the most visible stars in the sky, like the stars in the Big Dipper. But imagine a train of 60 of them traveling in a straight line overhead. It was not something that satellite builders thought about a lot. And I've actually talked to satellite engineers who describe a moment of pride that you would have when you could go out at night and see something that you built. Largely, people didn't care about this and didn't think about it. So Starlink engineers did not consider the brightness of the satellites. And astronomers knew that there were large numbers of satellites going up, but they thought that they would be kind of small and not very noticeable. It really took both sides by surprise. What are astronomers worried about when we put a bunch of bright objects in low Earth orbit? For the sake of astronomical research, there are a lot of projects that require looking at a lot of the sky at once, like a wide field image. You're trying to get light coming from the wider universe, especially very faint things, things that might vary on short timescales. And the more satellites moving across your cameras, your wide cameras every night, the less of the actual universe you see. Can you use math to take it out? Yeah, maybe you don't, maybe you keep the shutter closed when a satellite goes over, or maybe once the satellite goes through, you then have an algorithm that models, oh, this is what the streak of the satellite looks like. I can now subtract that out and pretend that on this image, it never crossed through. But there's a problem if you're looking for super rare things that aren't going to be recognizable until you see them. Yeah, and this kind of mathematical correction leaves a trace too. If you do scrub the satellites away, you end up introducing a new kind of modeling noise that's imperfect and you bias your future studies. You don't really know what the sky looked like there before the satellite came through. A lot of what astronomers are looking for are very rare objects that they don't even know to anticipate. If you look at a wide amount of sky all the time and you can look on, say, short time scales, like what flares up and dims down in the scale of one minute. We have no idea, but satellites can mimic a lot of these kind of short, wide, or narrow patterns. They can just get in the way of trying to identify actual rare astrophysics transients that are out there in the universe going bump in the night. Mostly in your story, you talk about the Vera Rubin telescope that hasn't come online yet, but will. What kinds of things are they looking for? The Vera Rubin Telescope is this big fishing expedition where the premise is they're just going to look at the entire sky over an entire night for 10 years. And they're going to keep looking again and again and again and again and taking short images. 
they are studying dark matter and dark energy and supernovae and comets and asteroids. It's this incredibly wide potential scope of what they can discover, what they can try to study. Going back to bright satellites crossing the path of this telescope and other astronomers trying to make observations of the night sky, can the satellites be less bright, less noticeable to the telescopes? Yes. So there's definitely a lot of ways that people building satellites can improve this problem. The height, the altitude at which they orbit, that depends how long into the night they're visible and how bright they are. Also, the way you design a satellite, the engineering of the satellite determines how shiny it is when sunlight hits it and then scatters back towards Earth. So obviously, Defense Department in this country and in other countries has probably solved this problem a long time ago. I mean, they realized if you make a big satellite, you don't want everyone to be able to see it. But it wasn't something that commercial satellite builders had thought about. And Starlink, which is the first cluster that we talked about, they've actually taken some steps to make their satellites less bright. They entered into discussions with astronomers. Basically, after there was public outcry and complaining about the brightness of the initial Starlinks, a team of astronomers from the Rubin Telescope and a team of SpaceX engineers started to work on technical solutions. So they could make the satellite less reflective. They could angle it differently so it didn't present a big mirror surface towards the Earth all the time. And through kind of collaborating on this, they were able to get Starlinks about one-fourth as bright as they were initially. And is that enough to solve some of the, the major complaints that astronomers have with this? Well, astronomers have had to be diplomatic about this. There's no level of dimming a satellite that truly makes the problem go away. If you're trying to see the universe, even a dim satellite crossing in front of it is, is interference. Astronomers have decided through science and diplomacy and policy to ask for a particular brightness, which is called seventh magnitude, which corresponds also to basically the limit of the human eye. So astronomers are asking satellite builders to hit this limit. Please don't make your satellites brighter, bright enough that we could see them with our eyes. And that will also help us do our science. This is something that, as you said, came through basically just a conversation with a company. Starlink has agreed to do this, but other companies don't have to. There isn't a regulation in place that says this is the limit. Yeah, it's a good faith negotiation from a giant corporation with an informal team of American astronomers who started these conversations. So this whole decision on what is a brightness threshold that the entire world can live with for satellite constellations is a closed door negotiation that happened in the past few years. And other companies are not involved yet. That's right. We mentioned briefly that there's some regulation here with respect to broadcasting. How does that work? Anyone who wants to build a satellite and then have that satellite talk to the ground has to approach a national regulator. In the United States, we have the FCC, and they have to get permission to broadcast from their satellites at a particular frequency. And the point of this is to make sure that your satellite transmissions don't interfere with a television signal in another country, they don't interfere with certain wavelengths that are protected for use only by scientists. It's just sort of trying to manage the overall radio sky. But the physical sky, how many are up there, who gets to use which part of the orbit, I guess, is not regulated. Is there any attempts right now to figure out how to share that space and use it wisely? Not really. I mean, the, the regulation has focused on let's make sure that the radio frequencies don't run out across the world. In terms of like 
claiming an orbit by effectively launching so many satellites that it's hard for anyone else to be up there. That's something that you can do in terms of launching very large satellites that might be visible from the ground. The system just doesn't consider a lot of these factors currently. But this is something that people are talking about. There are larger and larger groups kind of getting together, trying to figure this out, right? The biggest issue with these large satellite constellations is not really even this visibility from the ground, this light pollution issue. It's, are they going to contribute to space debris? Are they going to cause collisions that make space really hazardous? Yeah. What happens if we have a series of collisions of a bunch of corporate satellites? What, what would happen to that part of space? It would become really, really hazardous and risky for anyone else to use. Anyone going through that shell of space would have to be very careful about what's called traffic management. There's a lot of effort right now with regulators and academics who are studying space debris and the companies. Even the companies in this case are really on the side of saying, hey, we need to regulate the space debris issue more. So I think we're going to move to a situation where people are behaving a little bit more conservatively, prudently in that respect. Part of the fact that there isn't really regulation on the books for this and it's corporations that are carrying this out, you know, it means that maybe they're going to push each other around a little bit. And you did find a lawsuit that is kind of doing that. There have been rumblings of using the National Environmental Policy Act in the United States to try to force the FCC to regulate satellite launches in a way that would think more about what is their environmental impact to space, including their light pollution. And nobody has really pursued that case until another satellite company called Viasat, which has a competing business model to SpaceX. It decided to petition the FCC to stop SpaceX's current launches until some sort of environmental assessment has been done. And then it pursued that in a lawsuit, which is ongoing now. It's two private companies with an interest in space litigating space sustainability for the sake of everyone else, which is kind of an unusual situation. Can we ask about the humans, the other (laughs) stakeholders in this? Not just astronomers, not just corporations, not just radio people, but the rest of us who look up at the sky and want to see darkness and stars at night. Are we going to have a say? So far, not much of one, although people are working to change it. Professional astronomers use high-tech instrumentation to study the universe. That's a powerful constituency. It's backed by federal agencies. They have big missions with complex engineering challenges. And they were able very early on to get the attention of SpaceX and force these conversations. And, And astronomers, when they negotiated with SpaceX, were very mindful of things like, what's the limit of brightness that you could see with a naked eye? But they were doing it on behalf. I think, of of larger humanity. Recently, there have been meetings where astronomers are trying to bring in people who do astrophotography, people who represent particular indigenous astronomies that might have their own star knowledge. But that's a relatively recent development. There's this vision in your story of Earth surrounded by crowded orbital shells full of communication satellites, whatever the next venture is. And, you know, shuttles will have to navigate them and we'll have to look at the sky and half of what we see will be human-made. This is basically the idea of the industrialization of space. But then that makes me think we've been through this before, right? We've had rampant growth that damages the world and then there's pushback. Is that what's happening here? I think that's what's happening here. Although it's important to note, we're not at that fate now. 
you can't go outside now and see it happening. And these discussions are happening in advance of a future like that. Certainly the astronomers who work with SpaceX feel like by doing so, they have in part prevented a future like that where you see more satellites than stars in the sky. But I think it's, it's a long-term question of how we regulate space and how we treat space and what standards are set for corporations that have the power to launch thousands of objects into space. And it's all kind of in flux now. Thank you so much, Josh. Thanks for having me. Josh Sokol is a contributing correspondent for science. You can find a link to the article we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my chat with Arthur Cochet about following a virus for 10,000 years. Researchers at Queen's University Belfast translate research into action and make sense of a rapidly changing world. They keep up with technological, societal, and economic advances and drive change through collaboration and real-world partnerships. Their research leads to critical breakthroughs in areas such as green technology, food and agricultural sustainability, peacebuilding, and healthcare. Queen's University Belfast network of international researchers has a reputation for global excellence. Over 99% of their research was assessed as world-leading or internationally excellent in REF 2021. The impact of this research is felt around the world. Visit qub.ac.uk to find out how Queen's University Belfast is bringing research to reality. Over the course of about 18 months of coronavirus pandemic, we have seen variants come and go. What would these changes, these coming and going variants, look like over 10,000 years? Arthur Cochet is here to tell us about watching the evolution of the virus that causes hepatitis B over 10 millennia. Hi, Arthur. Hi. This is a really long time, 10,000 years, but how does that compare with how long the virus has been around in total? That's actually the, the difficult question. What we can say is that the whole diversity of the virus, as we observe it today, descends from a strain that existed about 12 to 20,000 years ago. What's really difficult to say is what happened before, whether the virus was uh, in humans for a very long time, or if it was uh, introduced in humans shortly before that time, that we cannot really say with the, our data. So today, hepatitis B is still infecting people, still killing people. How common is this disease? It's really common, actually. Unfortunately, it's, it's infecting hundreds of millions of people worldwide. So the WHO estimates that close to 4% of the world population is currently infected with this virus. And yes, it kills close to 1 million people each year. Is it a lower infection rate than before? It is. We've done some progress. There is an efficient vaccine for quite some time now, and, and it's working really well. So we've done some progress, but a lot of uh, regions, unfortunately, who don't have access to proper health infrastructure and proper medication, so it's taking a lot of time to completely eliminate it, but we... I guess we're on the way. So there's an efficient vaccine that at some point, if enough people are vaccinated, the virus will no longer be so common. Hopefully, yes. 
How were you able to look so far back in time to see how the virus has changed? Yes, we start with uh, our archaeologist colleagues doing uh, excavations and uh, sending us bones, basically. And then we have people in the lab applying different ancient DNA techniques to extract DNA from these uh, human remains. So those can be bones, those can be uh, teeth or different tissues. And then prepare this DNA to be uh, sequenced. And then comes the bioinformatic part where we have to look for traces of the pathogen we are looking for. We do this basically by comparing the soup of DNA that we obtain from the samples that contain, of course, human DNA, potentially pathogen DNA, but also all sorts of environmental contaminants. And so we compare this bulk DNA to uh, reference genomes for the, the pathogen that we, we want to look for. And we, we try to assess whether we, we find significant uh, match, basically. And then when we get a positive signal, what we often have to do is to actually enrich the sample for pathogen DNA using uh, what we call DNA capture. And hopefully, using this technique, we can get, uh, get sufficient uh, amounts of DNA so that we can reconstruct at least some part of the pathogen genome. How many samples did you include in the data set here? We generated genomes from 137 individuals, which is pretty exceptional, actually. So it's by far the largest pathogenomic uh, data set that has been generated so far. How old was the oldest sample that you used? The oldest sample is an individual from Belgium that is dated to about 10,000 years ago. So you sampled from Europe? and also from the Americas? We also have samples from ancient Native Americans from Central America and South America. And that's actually also one of the particularities of this study is that we have uh, recovered the first ancient viral genome from uh, ancient Native Americans. If, what did you say, 4% of people today have this pathogen, have this infection? 4% of the world population are living with the infection, a bit less, a tiny bit less, but it's about that. Is there an estimate for how high that number was in the past or even in the deep past? There is none. What I can tell you is that uh, about 4% of the individuals that we have uh, screened for uh, this pathogen gave positive results. So it's interesting that it's the same uh, kind of number, but actually what uh, we can expect from that is that the prevalence was much higher, of course, because the proportion of individuals in which we can detect the viral DNA is, is of course, uh, largely underestimating the true figure. One of the amazing things that you can do with a data set like this is look at this long timeline of changes in the virus and then compare what you see there with what was going on with people. What were some of the notable interactions that you could see when you looked at what was happening with the virus and what was happening with humanity? We have several interesting findings in the study. And the first one maybe is related to the fact that we recovered the first HBV genome from ancient Native Americans. And what we see is that the genotypes that today are predominantly associated with, with people of Native American ancestry, well, those descends from strains that were introduced in the Americas for a very long time, much before contact with the, the Europeans. And what we estimate is that this 
American branch, American HPV branch, as we call it, diverge from the rest of HPV diversity that we find today in Eurasia and in Africa about 12 to 20,000 years ago. The common ancestor of all those HPV strains that we observe today existed during the late Pleistocene, around the time of the first peopling of the Americas, and gave rise to one lineage that spread into the Americas together with some of the first inhabitants of that continent, and another one that spread widely in Eurasia and ultimately reached Africa and Oceania. This kind of leads to this larger point that following a pathogen that infects people over time can back up other kinds of evidence that we have about the history of people. So where they were, when they split off from other populations, those kinds of things. Yeah, indeed. It's it's one of the motivations of the study, actually, is that this virus has been infecting humans for a very long time, and therefore it has traveled also with humans for a very long time. So uh, looking at the evolutionary history of, of this virus can uh, tell us a lot about the, the history of the human species also. This paper also looks at connections between Hep B and events in Europe. What did you find there? Uh, we have reconstructed ancient HBV strains from Mesolithic hunter-gatherers dated to around 10,000 years ago. And what we see is that after the introduction of agriculture in Europe, the strains that were carried by hunter-gatherers were replaced by new strains that were likely disseminated by the first farmers of Europe, who we know now trace back their origins into Anatolia and expanded throughout Europe at that time. So in this case, the evolutionary history of the virus really reflects something that we know about uh, human history. And throwing another line of evidence into a very knotty puzzle of history. That's wonderful. You were able to follow this lineage for a long time in Europe, and then all of a sudden it was gone. Do we know what happened? What's interesting is that after the Neolithic transition and the spread of these uh, new strains that I just mentioned, we see that these new variants, they uh, quickly spread all across Western Eurasia, actually, and they remain there and they continue to infect people all over that region for about 4,000 years. And what we were really surprised to see is that about 3,000 years ago, something must have happened. And that was probably one of the most surprising findings of our studies. So around that time, we observed that there is a sudden decline and maybe actually an almost complete collapse of the HVV lineage that were uh, introduced during agriculture. And what we're seeing is, is that uh, this might reflect uh, important changes in epidemiological dynamics, in particular, this, this well-known Late Bronze Age collapse around uh, 1200 BCE, which is basically the collapse of the most large Bronze Age uh, societies in the Eastern Mediterranean uh, region. Wow. Very cool. I mean, seeing all these different places where you can have new insight into human history is just amazing. And of course, I want more. Can we do more? Can we do more of this particular virus's history and then maybe even other pathogens' history and kind of make a finer and finer mesh to examine history? Sure, that's uh, one of the aims for uh, our group uh, now to extend this kind of work based on large collections of uh, archaeological remains to other viruses. 
can we still see this relationship between the virus's genetics and what's happening with people today, you know, in modern times? Yes. So something else that was really surprising with this study is that we saw that among all that prehistorical viral diversity that uh, seemed to have disappeared some 2,000 years ago, there is actually one lineage that seemed to have persisted to the present and that gave rise to a group of strains that today are classified as a specific HPV genotype. This genotype has been uh, discovered only relatively recently. It's a pretty rare genotype that is found in uh, actually many different places in Europe, in Asia, also in the Americas, so its geographic origins were not really clear. And studies have shown actually that this genotype seems to have re-emerged really recently during the HIV pandemic. It's not really clear why this is the case, but I think it's really interesting to, to know that this genotype that was considered somehow really modern and connected to a really modern epidemic is actually the only remnant of a large diversity of prehistoric strains. Thanks, Arthur. Thanks, Sarah. Arthur Cochet is a researcher at the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe there or anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby and Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.